Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to be focusing this morning on verse 16 and verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and verse 17. Now, I could have come up with a better title, I'm sure. I will probably be corrected on this title when I get home. But I, to me, it's more culturally understood. And that's just this. Here's my title. Don't mess with God's people. <laughs> now, there's other ways I could have said that. Don't tread on God's people or whatever. But you know, we're in the South, so let's just go on and talk like we talk. Don't mess with God's people. <laughs> now, we've seen so far, and going back just a little bit, there's a foundation laid in each person's heart when he puts his faith into Jesus Christ. That foundation is Christ Jesus himself. Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. God used Paul to lay this foundation upon the hearts of the Corinthians as they put their faith into Christ. Once a person becomes a believer, he has the foundation. Now a building project begins. And there are two kinds of materials that go into this building that's one day going to be tested before God. One is the good kind found in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 12. He says, now if anyone builds upon the foundation, foundation is Christ, with gold, silver, or precious stones, the first three will stand the test of God's judgment one day. Now this judgment that's coming is not to approve the man. We're already approved in Christ. It's to approve the works of a man. It's a big difference now. Hasn't got anything to do with your eternal security, but it has everything to do with what you do with what you have while you live here on this earth. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13, it is the work of man that will be judged, not the man. It says in verse 13, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And uh, the good quality then, the, the, the materials, is the wood, I mean, is the gold, the silver, the precious stone. But then you have the bad materials also found in verse 12, which is the wood, the hay, and the straw. The last three things mentioned in verse 12. It will be these works that will not stand the test of God. And so God will have a test of fire one day. Fire consumes. And if a life has been lived by faith, obedient to the Spirit and to the Word, 
then the result will be gold, silver, and precious stones. But if a life has been lived after the flesh, then that will be wood, hay, and straw and will be consumed. It'll be like standing in the presence of God and suddenly all that's not of him will disappear. And what's left standing will be that work which we have done in our lifetime. Now, it's a judgment for reward. There's a lot of people afraid of this and you shouldn't be if you're living to please the Lord Jesus. You should not fear this at all. It's for our benefit. It's to give us a reward. Look in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 3. It says, if any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. The downside of that is, verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But now watch. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. So it's not to approve the man, he's approved in Christ. It's to approve his works. And again, it's not concerning our eternal security. Please get that out of your mind. I just want to keep saying that so nobody gets confused. Now, what we've seen are two kinds, are two builders here, and there are two kinds of materials that they use. One builder builds out of faith, one builder builds upon the flesh. And as a result of that, there is a house that remains on the foundation. But in verse 16, we come upon something entirely different. Here, we do not have a builder. We have somebody who's destroying that which is being built. One who doesn't build. Uh, Paul is warning those now who come against the people who are busy about building upon the foundation of Christ. Now, they're in the church. They're outside the church. Some people say, and I think it's erroneous, that in Paul's day when he wrote his epistles, that the people would come to church they would meet to worship and then they'd go out and Satan would persecute them and attack them. And they said, but today in the 20th century, Satan has joined the church <laughs> and there's as much persecution inside the church as there is outside the church. And I think that's a wrong statement. Not for today. Oh, I believe it today. But I believe in Paul's day it was the same way. Because if you'll read the letters, there were as many wicked people inside the church as they were outside the church. So Paul gives a warning. God really is giving the warning through Paul to those people who would seek to destroy the building being built by God's own, by those that have been saved. And we're going to learn a lot about these folks. Look in verse 16 and verse 17. Let me read the passage and then we'll get into it. It's going to take a while and it's not an easy passage. Verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Now, it may seem easy what we just read, but it is not. So let's, let's dig in this morning. Three things that I want you to see. Perhaps it'll help us better understand what's being said here in 1 Corinthians 3. First of all is this. Paul tells us that we are the dwelling of God. We are the dwelling of God. Verse 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God. Now he uses the same terminology over in chapter six that we'll read in a moment. And there he speaks of each individual being a temple of God, the body being the temple of God, the Holy of Holies, that, where, that place where God resides on this earth. But I believe what he's doing here in chapter three, yes, that's included, but I think he more looks at the broader picture of the whole church being a temple of God. 
and that, that we won't argue either way. But from a context, I think you'll see as we go along, he's talking about the whole church wherever they are, not just at Corinth. But, but let's look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, so that you'll know what I'm talking about. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He says, or do you not know that your body, and he's talking about the individual, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. So it, it appears there he's talking about the individual person being a temple. And back in chapter 3, not only is that, is that taken into consideration, but he looks at the whole picture of all of us being the residents of God on this earth. Now God has chosen to dwell with his people on this earth. You go back to the Old Testament when God chose to tabernacle among his people. He had them build a tabernacle. And oh, what an exciting day that was when the fire came down from heaven, giving the people the understanding that God's presence was, a, was with them in the Holy of Holies there of the tabernacle that they had built. A little later on, it moves from a, a temporary dwelling, the tabernacle, to a more permanent dwelling, which would be the temple that Solomon built. And what a day that was when the temple was dedicated. And God was dwelling with his people in the place called the Holy of Holies. In the Greek, it would be that same word we're looking at here as the temple, neos. It's the idea of the place where God dwells. But you know that Israel rejected God. They continued to sin against him. And out of his righteous anger, he withdrew his presence. And from the book of Malachi to the book of Matthew, there's 400 years called the period of darkness there. And nothing was spoken from heaven. God was not dwelling amongst his people until the gospels were written. And then God broke the silence and chose once again to dwell with us. And he came and tabernacled in his son, Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin, took upon himself uh, uh, flesh and blood. He was actually didn't take a body, but he was born uh, from a virgin, born flesh and blood. No earthly father, but uh, the heavenly father. And he became the unique God-man. And God now dwelled in a fleshly body with his people on this earth in Jesus Christ. Jesus was the actual temple of God on this earth. Of course, man crucified him. And then he resurrected, ascended, the, I mean, resurrected the third day, ascended, was glorified. And then on the day of Pentecost, he sent his spirit back to this earth to dwell in the hearts of believers, to take up permanent residence within us. And so the church becomes the temple of God upon the earth. God dwells in us. And the apostle Paul says, do you not know? Now the word for know there is, it's a form of the, of the word evo. In other words, do you not have this perception? Do you not have this understanding? It's something sometimes you want to remind Christians. Do you not know? Especially in counseling, I'm sure, when a husband and wife are having difficulty and one of them says, I just can't love him. I just can't put up with him. And you could say back to that person, do you not know that you are the temple of God upon this earth where God dwells? Nobody ever said you could, but he can and he lives in you. We are the dwelling of God upon this earth. Now, Paul has just told them how important it is to build upon the foundation of Christ with precious stones and, and, and making sure that it stands the test of God's judgment. 
And now as if to further explain that, he points out that they are the temple of God on this earth. In other words, it's not their reputation that it's at stake. It's his reputation that is at stake. And if anything becomes a motivating factor in our life, it ought to be that Christ lives in us. That's why we should live lives by faith to build upon this foundation a building that will stand God's test one day. So many people just do not realize that they're the dwelling of God on this earth. And I've told you about the little 84-year-old lady down in Mississippi one time. They said, Brother Wayne, I did not know God lived in me. Well, I was out in Sacramento, California earlier this year, and an 81-year-old man came forward. And he said, Wayne, I'm overwhelmed that God lives in me. How many people come to church every week and don't know they bring God with them? <laughs> that God lives in them. We have got to grasp this. And this is what Paul is trying to bring out. Why would you attach yourself to a man? Attach yourself to Christ. He lives in you. And let him work through you so that people can see that you're his temple here on this earth. Well, some people say, well, God is omnipresent. Isn't he everywhere? Then why would you say he lives in us if he's not everywhere? Have you ever asked that question? Well, it's a very simple answer. Yes, he's everywhere, but everybody doesn't recognize that. He's everywhere. He's in creation. There, some, some of the greatest poets have written beautiful things about creation and then signed beside their name. Atheist. They don't believe in God. And God's all around them. And they can't see him. But God has uniquely chosen human beings that he would come to live in them. Those that put their faith into Jesus Christ. And when they do, now we can not only be aware of his omnipresence, but we can understand him, we can walk with him, we can talk with him, we can hear him. It's an intimate relationship he chose to have with you and me. He chose to take up permanent residence in the hearts and lives of believers. Now, this was the burden that Paul had for the church at Ephesus, and I guess every other epistle that he wrote, but particularly the Corinthians and the Ephesians. Look over to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. He really wanted these Gentiles to know that Christ lived in them, that they were the temple of God on this earth, that God actually dwelled in their hearts and in their lives. For Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, this is a, begins a prayer there that I think is the hinge of the whole book of Ephesians. It sums up everything in chapters 1, 2, and 3. It sets up everything in chapters 4, 5, and 6. But look what he says here in verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before, before the Father. Now, what reason? When your uh, observation interpretation. Normally, when you want to find out what reason, you'd read a few verses by, behind that and you'd find the reason. Well, here it's more difficult Look at verse 1 of chapter 3, and he starts that verse the same way he starts verse 14, very same Greek word. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, I could be wrong, but I think he starts his prayer in verse 1. And for 13 verses, he just gets overwhelmed with what he's praying for them. Here he is in prison, loving Jesus, overwhelmed that Christ lives in him. And he can't, he has such a high view of Christ and a high view of salvation, he's just continuously overwhelmed at the revelation of the mystery that God has shown to him. Then he comes back to his prayer in verse 14. So if I'm correct on that, and like I said, I could be wrong, you have to go back to chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, to find out why he bows his knees before the Father. Look back in chapter 2 and verse 19. 
Beautiful, beautiful here what he's saying to him. He's a converted Jew writing to converted Gentiles, but he wants them to understand something. And he says in verse 19 of chapter 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And then verse 22, he just tops it off. He says, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And he wants them to understand it for this reason. I bow my knees before the Father. Man, you Gentiles need to understand who lives in you. And you need to understand who you are and whose you are in light of that truth and live out of that. If you don't, the building that we're building upon the foundation is not going to stand the test of God's judgment one day. And our works will be destroyed instead of remaining, which will bring forth a reward. With this understanding then, if you're ever in the church, <laughs> isn't it funny how you teach your children? Donnie, don't you say anything. You're in God's house when you walk inside the doors of this building. <laughs> and you've taught that child that God lives in this building. I'm glad that he's omnipresent and he's everywhere. He needs to be working on the air conditioning though. The air conditioning's not working real good today. Next time somebody walks to you, say like you wear a hat into God's house, okay? You walk into, into the church, God's house, and you walk in and you have that hat on. And if somebody walks up to you and says, young man or young lady, you get that hat off your head. You're in God's house. You just real quick say back to them, I beg your pardon. This hat's not in God's house. This hat's on God's house and keep right on walking. Understand what Paul is saying here. God's not here because it's a building here. He came, he, he put up permanent residence in you and in me and he chose to do that. So we bring him here in that one respect, even though he's omnipresent in that sense, we knowingly bring him here. He's wherever we are. He's when nobody else can see us, but our, this to us, he lives in us. He's always there. Now, if this is not misunderstood, there's going to be some serious problems in the building that we're building that's going to be tested one day. And it's, it's so clear from God's word that what we're doing now, there's going to be an accounting for it one day. God has given us everything for life and for godliness, and he's going to test it one day as to see what we have done with it. Not to approve us, but to approve those works. So we must realize that we are the dwelling of God on this earth. Now, notice what he says. He says, do you not know that you are a temple of God? Now, show you something here that perhaps you wouldn't see in the English. In the Greek, there is no definite article here. <laughs> you say, well, big deal. What does that mean? Well, when the definite article is there, it identifies. When it is not there, it qualifies. What does that mean, Wayne? Well, in other words, he's talking about God in, in the Godhead, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the three in one. You say, Wayne, this stuff always blows my mind. I want to be honest with you, it blows mine too. I can't understand it. If we could understand this in all of its totality, then God would be no bigger than our brain and you certainly wouldn't want to come if God's no bigger than our brain. Why would we come to church to start with? I mean, it's much bigger than that. You, you can't even illustrate it. However, we can show you some scriptures to show you that all of God comes to live in you. All that God decides to give to us. Look in John 14 and verse 16. John 14 and verse 16. 
This is very important. This is the words of Jesus. They're written in red. <laughs> I had a lady ask me one time after a service, are the, are the, the parts written in black, are they inspired too? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But this is Jesus speaking here in John 14 and verse 16. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. The word another, alos, means another of exactly the same kind. Not the word heteros, which means another of a different kind. And then in verse 17, that is the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit of God, whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you now, but then he will abide where? In you. Look at verse 19. After a while, the world will behold me no more. It'll neither see nor understand me. But you will behold me because I live, you shall live also. There's going to be someone in you to give manifestation to me. Then in verse, four, or verse 20 of chapter 14. In that day, you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And then a little later, look at verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. What I'm trying to show you is if the Holy Spirit of God lives in us, then that is God, very God. When you have the Holy Spirit, you've got the Father and the Son wrapped up into one. When you have Jesus, you have the Father and the Spirit. When you have the Father, you have the Son and the Spirit. They're all one. They're not three gods. There's one God and three persons. And so if the Holy Spirit lives in you, God lives in you. The word for temple there is the word naos, as we mentioned a while ago, N-A-O-S, transliterated. In most instances, it, it refers to the whole temple, but not here. In many instances, specific instances, it refers to the holy of holies. There's another word that we have that's synonymous with it. And it means the sacred place, the holy place, that place that God himself dwells. Now that ought to make you think the next time you make a choice. God himself dwells in you. You are, in a, in a sense, the Holy of Holies on this earth. Now, the Holy of Holies is where, where God is in heaven. However, he's on earth and he has chosen to reside within the hearts of man. God dwells within us. We are his temples on this earth. Now, what is the purpose of a temple? There are two things that I want you to see, and I think it all fits with what we're looking at in the context of 1 Corinthians 3. First of all, the temple was a magnificent structure. It was made of all the things that were precious, precious stones, gold and the silver, where God would manifest himself. Now, everything was done to keep the temple from decaying or for corrupt, from corrupting. The problem was the people that were in it were people that were wicked and people that lived without faith. When Christ came on the scene, now he makes it possible for us to be the temple of God. And we are to be that magnificent structure in which people look at us and see us pointing to him. And they see the, the righteous deeds that we do and these become the precious stones. Not a cold stone or a cold piece of metal, but something that's living and fleshed out. When we're willing to walk by faith, people see that and that becomes the beauty that surrounds the one who dwells within us. And people everywhere realize that we, there's a fragrance about us. The aroma of Christ is in our life. We now become the temple. And the beauty again is those righteous stones, those righteous deeds that we do by faith. But also the temple was a place of worshiping God. Aren't you glad that we don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship God? 
We don't even have to come to Woodland Park to worship God. What we do here, we do as a body. But wherever you are, you can worship God in spirit and in truth. Wherever you are. And worship is a verb. Worship is not something you feel. Worship is something you do in response to what God has done in your own life. And the moment you surrender to him, it may be in a, in a restaurant when a waitress says, you've ordered something and she brought the wrong thing and it was cold. And, but you chose to die to the flesh and you let the Spirit of God reach out and touch her. You have worshiped God by your response to his Spirit in your life. That's what it's all about. We worship him by falling down before him, by willingness to serve him, by willingness to live lives that point to him and not to us. So we're the temples of God on this earth. You, people that see you at work won't see you here, many of them, but they see you as the residence of God. They see you as that person in which God resides, and that's our whole purpose. And it's his reputation that is at stake. It is not ours. And so, to take it a step further of our motivation to build upon the foundation with the correct, the correct materials, he tells us that we're the dwelling of God on this earth. But the second thing I want you to look at here, in, by being the dwelling of God on this earth, he says we are indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I said a little bit about that. I'm not going to go back and try to prove he's God. You know he's God. He comes to live in us. I want to take it a step further. He says in verse 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The word for dwells is the word ikio. It comes from ikos, which means house or residence. In other words, he has taken up residence within our life. It's in the present active indicative. Continuously he dwells in our life of his own accord, active voice, and write it down. It's a fact, indicative, you see. In other words, this is something that you just take home and understand. God says he's taken up residence in your life. Now, the Holy Spirit taking up residence in your life is proof of your holiness before God. Understand that. Look in, look in verse 17. He says, for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. The last part of verse 17. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Now, the word holy is the word hagios. We saw that in chapter one. Holiness does not mean perfection when it comes to us. When it comes to him, yes, but not to us. His is inherent. Ours is imputed. But what the word holy means, we have been set apart. We have been put into a class all by ourselves. <laughs> Amongst all humanity, we're in a class all by ourselves. Why? Because the Spirit of God has taken up residence in our heart. He has separated us unto himself and for his purposes, therefore, we have been made holy. His living in our life is proof of that fact. And Paul says, and that is what you are. You are holy because God is holy and lives in you and has separated you unto himself and made you holy. We as believers are the very temple of God. He sent his own spirit to take up residence in our life. Now, what does the spirit do? <laughs> well, if you think along the context here, it just excites you. The Holy Spirit is the building project coordinator. <laughs> now, what did we look at last time? We saw that we we're building a building. It's going to be tested one day. Well, now, who is the one who's running this project? The Holy Spirit of God. Look over to Ephesians 3, verse 16. Same prayer, same chapter, but a different verse. Verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 3. <laughs> I want you to see what he says. What is the Holy Spirit in our life to do? Okay. He says in verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 3, that he would grant you 
according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. It's the spirit of God that enables the righteous bricks to be put upon the foundation of Christ in my life. If I'm living in obedience to him, if I'm living surrendered to him, the result is going to be a house that will withstand the test that God's going to give to it one day, the test of fire. We are to be, as he says over in Ephesians 5, verse 18, we are to be filled with the Spirit of God. It says in verse 18 of Ephesians 5, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, that's waste, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? Well, it's understood by the first part of the verse. We are to be totally affected by the Holy Spirit, not by stuff that's outside coming in, like wine or that which makes us drunk. You ever been around a drunk person? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, they're the most obnoxious people you've ever been around in your life. When I was in school, I lived in an off-campus house, and this fellow would come in at night drunk all the time. One night, staggered into my room. Have you ever, had, have you ever woke up just knowing somebody's standing over you? I, I, to me, that's the worst thing in the world. And it scared me so, I don't know what I must have been dreaming about, but I just had the sensation, somebody's standing right here watching me. And I came, I woke up and I came out ready to swing. And as I, as I came forward, he grabbed my arm and said, Wayne, 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 this is Bill. As a friend of mine, he lived down the hall. And I said, Bill, what are you doing? Then I smelled it. Oh, yay, 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 yay. The alcohol breath. I mean, just, oh. I'm thinking, why do people drink this stuff? Got some things I could say about that, but not in church. He said, can you help me find my room? And I said, well, I guess. <laughs> I had to get out of bed about three in the morning, and I helped him down to do his room. Then he got into his room. Oh, isn't it fun to drink? All you young people think it's so cool. Then he started regurgitating, throwing up. Isn't that fun, right before dinner? And he started, and I said, Bill, good grief. Man, I had to help clean him up and get him in the bed and, he sat there and he began to weep and he said, Wayne, why do I do stuff like this? And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know. But by being drunk, his senses were affected. He couldn't think straight. Didn't he know where he was? His, his sight was affected. He couldn't even see to get into the door. I had to help him down the hall. His hearing was affected. He couldn't even understand half the things I was saying to him. His walk was affected. He couldn't walk normally. Everything about him had been affected by something outside that he had taken in. And the Apostle Paul said, no, 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 that's waste. But be ye filled, by the same way you get drunk with, with wine, be ye filled with the Spirit of God. Let the Holy Spirit through his word control your mind. Let the Holy Spirit give you understanding and, and, and perception through your spiritual eyes. Let the Holy Spirit help you to hear what God's saying to you. Let the Holy Spirit teach you how to walk. Let the Holy Spirit control you. And it's in the present tense. It means it's a lifestyle. Be being filled. And it's in the passive voice. Let him do the filling. Let him do the controlling. And it's imperative. There's no option to the belief. Now the Holy Spirit lives in us to do exactly that. And if I live filled with the Spirit of God, controlled by the Spirit of God, surrendered to Him, then the building that's being built on the foundation of Christ one day will be tested by fire, will withstand the fire, and there'll be a reward in the end. Be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That's what He's in our life to do, to rule and to reign and to enable us to build with the precious stones and the gold and the silver, the righteous deeds 
that will stand the test of God one day. It is the Holy Spirit of God that proves that we're holy. He lives in us and has separated us unto himself. And he enables us now to live separate unto him and for the building to be built correctly. Well, thirdly, there's one more thing. We are the dwelling of God. Secondly, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. But here comes the main thought of what Paul is saying. Thirdly, Paul says, there are those who seek to defile the dwelling of God. And here is when God through Paul is going to say, you better not mess with my people. Look at verse 17. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Now, many people think that means suicide. That's crazy how you surface translate something or, or interpret something. Be real careful. That's not at all what he's talking about here. He's not saying if you go out and kill yourself, which is destroying the temple, God's going to destroy you. It has nothing to do with it. If a Christian is a Christian, even suicide is not an unpardonable sin because we are kept blameless, not sinless, in Christ until that day. No matter what sin we commit, it may have excruciating consequences, but once you put your faith into Christ, nothing can throw you out of the kingdom of God. You are His forever. So it is, it's not talking about somebody committing suicide in this particular verse. It has nothing to do. Matter of fact, the word destroy it could have been translated a little bit better to give us an idea. King James, I think, picks it up and says defile. Much better translation. Let me show you. The word for destroy is apolumi, and that's not the word used here. The word that's used here, I cannot pronounce. <laughs> it's P-H-T-H-E-I-R-O. <laughs> Thero. <laughs> <laughs> Just sort of spit and say Thero. Thero. That's, <laughs> that's the way it sounds to me. I'm sorry. For those of you that speak Greek, I don't mean to be, but I don't. It comes from the word that means to waste away, uh, to pine away, to corrupt. It, 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 it refers to something that goes from this state to a much worsened state. That's what the idea means, to corrupt, to go from this state to this state, which is worth, makes you worse off. The word destroy, like I said, is a different word altogether. This word means to corrupt, to defile. Uh, Paul says, if any man destroy the temple of God. Now, who is this man? Let's see some things. Let's make some observations about him. First of all, he cannot be a believer. Because in verse 17 says, if you destroy the temple of God, God says he'll destroy you. There's no way that the believer is ever going to be destroyed by God. But there is something about the believer that's going to be destroyed. What is it? That's his fleshly works. That's right. Not the believer, but his works. So we already have an observation here. This cannot be a believer. Cannot be a believer. Secondly, he must be a person bent on corrupting the church. Somebody who's out to get the church to keep them from walking by faith and to walk after the world in the ways of the world. It's it, the verb there is in the present active indicative. Present tense is an ongoing thing. Active voice, it's of his own volition. And then again, the indicative, you better write this down. This is what these people are doing. The tense of it then is in that area. This is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing bent that somebody has to, to corrupt, to defile the pure walk of faith that the church is supposed to be living. Now, this should not surprise us that there are people like that even among us today. should not surprise us. There's, there's a lot of people who still have not gotten it in their theology of how bad we were before we got saved. 
In other words, you try to convince some people that they're sinners and ungodly, etc. They're not me. Look over in Romans chapter 5, and I'll show you what every one of us were before God found us. And none of us found him. He found us. Look over in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. It should not surprise us that there are people even among us today that hate the things of God, that are enemies of the walk of faith, and would seek to corrupt and defile the people that are his temples on this earth. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 says, For while we were still helpless, I know some of you are still turning, but I've got, I'm watching my time here. I'm going to jump in there. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the whom? For the whom? Ungodly. Brother Wayne, I was never ungodly. Well, I believed in Jesus from the time I was born. <laughs> Have you heard that? Raise your hand. Everybody heard that? I wasn't ungodly. I, we were good people, Wayne. We were good people. Yeah, right. No, you were ungodly. That's what you were. That's what I was. That's what all of us were. Born in Adam, that's what we were. No matter how you covered it up, that's what we were. Look at verse 8. tells you even more. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet what? Sinners. You know what that means? Habitual sinners. Oh, not me, Brother Wade. I didn't smoke. I didn't chew. I didn't run around with those who do. I was a good boy. I helped little old ladies across the street. I was good. I was a good person. And the prophet of, of the nation of Israel, Isaiah said, take all of our good deeds and stack them up in their filthy rags in the sight of God. See, we don't understand that sin is anything that proceeds from a person who has not become the dwelling of God on this earth. Sin is sin. Whether we want to call it religious or, re or rebellious, it's still sin. Sinners is what we were. And then it goes on in verse 10. For if while we were, what? Enemies. Enemy. I, I wasn't an enemy of God. <laughs> yes, you were. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, I want to tell you something. That kind of mindset is a lost person's mindset. That's what he is. He's ungodly. He's a habitual sinner. And he's an enemy of God. He's an enemy to anything that's of God. And Paul has already laid the groundwork for us. He says that the ungodly, they think the gospel, the preaching of the cross is foolish. You see, Romans chapter 1 says, professing themselves to become, that they're wise, they became fools. So this is the mindset of the lost. And in our day and time, there are people that have even joined the church that are lost. And they think because they've joined the church, they've joined Jesus. You don't join Jesus. You have to be born from above. That's entirely different. And a lot of people inside the church still have a fleshly mindset. And when anything goes wrong, they seek as a lifestyle to pull you away from your walk of faith, from the simplicity of trusting God, and put you back down on this earth and make you think like the world thinks. And they're everywhere, folks. They're inside the church. They're outside the church. And their very lifestyle seeks to corrupt and defile the people that are the temples of God. And Corinth was absolutely no exception. As a matter of fact, it was the illustration of the day the most wicked city on the face of this earth. And all of a sudden, you begin to understand the feel of this book. Evidently, some of them had gotten into this church and some of them, enemies of God, were seeking to tear down what these believers wanted to build up. And God says, buddy, you corrupt my people, you defile my people, and I will corrupt and defile you. Listen, the word corrupt there has the idea 
of deceiving somebody. Matter of fact, listen to how it's used. Look, look over in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 2. This word that we're looking at here has the idea of corruption, perhaps by deception. It's not as easily seen as you think it is. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2. He says, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. Now look, Paul's speaking of his own defense now when he was among them. We corrupted no one, same word. We took advantage of no one. In other words, what he's saying is we taught you the word of God, pure. That what we taught you is God's word. We didn't corrupt. We didn't deceive you. We didn't defile you in any way. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. We find it again. Connected with the idea of deception. He says in verse 3, But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That term led astray is the same word we're looking at. I want you to get the idea here, what it means to corrupt somebody, lead them astray, deceive them. Look in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 2. It's used again of the great harlot that's going to seduce the world during that time, that awful time. Revelation 19 and verse 2. It says in verse 2, Because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. The corrupting the earth is the same word that we're looking at. And so when he talks about people that would come in and would corrupt or destroy the temple of God, he speaks of non-believers who are either inside the church or outside the church who seek to deceive the people and lead them astray, lead them out of truth and lead them into error. And he says, any of you that are doing that, I will destroy you the same way. So the word has the meaning of corrupting by the means of deception. There are lost people both outside and inside the church that are doing just that. Maybe their false doctrine of permissiveness or their false doctrine of worldliness. You, oh, you can do it. Everybody's doing it. And if it pulls you away from your walk in faith and, and walking in truth and leads you into error, look out, whoever that person is, because God says, you're messing with my people and I'm going to deal with you. Verse 17 goes on. Here's the warning right here. If any man destroys the temple of God, corrupts it, defiles it, God will destroy him. Now the tense here is future active. In other words, they are doing it present tense every day. This is sometime in the future. At a point, at some time in the future, God is going to do the same thing to you. That's what he says. And now, what is spoken of here, it needs to be looked at. The word destroy is the same word we just looked at. So the, the, nothing changes, but it's translated destroy. But remember, it means corrupt, to defile, to bring to a worsened state. Now let's make some more observations at this point. Observe here again, it's the person, not his works, that are going to be corrupted and, and defiled. Secondly, the only passage that helps us with this, I think, is Galatians chapter 6 and verse 8, where it uses the same word. Look over there just for a second. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 8. Man, whew, when this thing starts coming together for you, you're going to shout because it just paints a picture. 1 Corinthians, or rather Galatians chapter 6 and verse 8. 
Same word, corruption is there. He says, for the one who sows to his own flesh, and that means a continual sowing, shall from the flesh reap what? Corruption. That's your word right there. Now hang on to that word. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. So you have a difference here. You have corruption, you have eternal life as two distinctly different things. One's the result of this awful sowing of the flesh. The other's result of sowing of the Spirit. Again, we're not talking about the believer here. Now, go with me the third thing. What is this corruption, this punishment that God's going to bring upon the person who continuously seeks to corrupt the temple of God? All right? We don't know. But look in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 52. I think it gives us an idea. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 52. Watch this. We're the temples of God and we are promised something that the lost people are not promised. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and this is when Jesus comes one day for his church and this is the giving of a glorified body. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead, talking about the righteous dead, their bodies, will be raised. And what's the next word? Imperishable. That means incorruptible. It's exactly the same word except it means incorruptible here. Incorruptible. And we shall be changed. In other words, there's going to come a day when God's going to raise us up. These old corruptible bodies that have been buried if, he, if, he, if we die before he comes. And give us a glorified body that will clothe our immortal spirit forever. But what about the lost man? The lost man does not have that promise. He is corrupting, 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 corrupting. And one day when God raises him, he will have no glorified body. And he will stand before God with a corruptible body. And in that sense of the word, be cast into hell forever and somehow have to suffer that corruption for all of eternity. And God is warning them. He says, all of you who destroy and corrupt and defile the work of my people, my temples on this earth, look out. One day I will corrupt you. You will have not what they have. They'll have a resurrection body. You will not. And you'll stand unrighteous before him and you will live forever, separated from God in hell forever. Well, my time ran out, but I tell you what, this thing just, to me just gets better and better. Wait till tonight. Wait till the next time. I mean, it just keeps building. It just keeps building. He, it, this is all one beautiful thought that flows together. But the idea is this, folks. Payday someday. <laughs> For the believer who's building, there's going to be a payday. If you're going to build after the flesh, it'll be consumed. You'll be saved. But you're not going to have much left. If you're building according to the Spirit, there'll be a great reward. But there's also a payday someday to the person who's out to destroy the buildings, the temple of God, what God's doing through His people. And you know, when God pays you, it's never right away. Have you ever noticed that? To believers, we get to enjoy the earnest of His Spirit. And we get to enjoy the beauty and the victory of things today. But I'm talking about in sense of reward. That comes later on. And that's the mindset. You see, you tell a lost person that today who may be sitting in this congregation, somebody who's really made it well in life, and he doesn't really think he needs God. He doesn't live by the Word. Shoot, are you kidding me? He's crafty, sly. Everything he does is underhand. But he comes to church, and he thinks, what are you talking about, man? I'm doing better than I've ever done in my life. That's good. That's real good. Enjoy it while you can, because there is a day coming, folks. 
And it may not be when you think it's going to be, but you will stand before God one day. When I played basketball in college, clean living took a blow every time we walked on the floor. I was at a Baptist school. They should have taken the name Baptist off of the vans. Three of the guys that I played ball with, starting five, were the biggest, not just drunks, but alcoholics I've ever known in my entire life. And folks, they could run with the best of them, shoot the eyes out of the gold, had pot bellies, like I've got now, but had pot bellies. I mean, they could just do it. And I never could understand that. I'd, I'd try to eat right, try to sleep right, try to do all the right things. And somehow it just didn't work that way for me. However, I've seen some of them the last five years. I know I'm 54 and look 60. But those 54-year-olds that I saw looked like they were 95. Because back when they were doing it, they didn't pay. Payday came later, and it cost them. And what God is saying to all of us, whether you be a believer building with the right materials or a believer trying to build the wrong materials, or you may be an unbeliever trying to tear it all down, payday is coming. And there is going to be a judgment for all of us. There's integrity in what we're talking about, folks. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 